0: 80% of type 2 diabetes are, are caused by excessive weight and you can go into remission if you can lose that excessive weight.
1: Welcome to Tech Talks, the podcast brought to you by Nash Squared and hosted by myself David Savage that's been bringing you the latest thinking from technology leaders for over eight years. Joining me today, we've got a quiche on what's been quite a seismic day in the UK. Not actually, not just the UK startup sector, US as well, obviously, with Silicon Valley Bank in the US and the UK um, running into difficulties. Good news, though, for the startup sector in the UK with the agreement that HSBC um, has stepped in to buy Silicon Valley Bank, deposits being protected, no taxpayer support. had to say, as much as I don't particularly like the government and I don't make a make a secret of that akish they've they've done pretty well here very
2: quick moving i thought very quick moving i Mm. thought this saga would spill into monday um which would have been disastrous which would have been yeah before the markets opened and i think that's why they they had to move quite quickly and i think speaking to um not speaking but listening to some podcasts over the weekend and, and radio kind of commentary and whatnot i thought it was um you know, you had some founders on there that were heavily leveraged into SVB and yeah. well, <clears throat> quite frankly, I don't think they would have slept a minute over the weekend, um, not knowing what's going to hit them on nope. Monday morning. So well done to Mr. Jeremy Hunt, well done to the Bank of England and well done to HSBC. I think very good business for HSBC, especially when you look <laughs> at, I guess, their typical portfolio of clients and the markets that they operate mm-hmm. in. And this will hope open up a whole new sector and effectively a region as well, um, you know, for, for, for those guys. So I think it's, um, it, it's very good. Whether or not it will be as good and as easy and as uh, seamless as we're being led to believe on the news, we'll have to find out. And I guess the next few months will tell us that.
1: I thought one of the interesting points that I, I saw on Twitter, so I take this with a pinch of salt, but it kind of made sense, was that they need to have a look at... Um... Banking regulations, particularly in the US where this was a regional bank, um, in terms of how it was uh, regulated and viewed, that in the age of social media and particularly where you've got a a community like technology and life sciences where everybody's in each other's feed, obviously a lot of those regulations were put in place where it took kind of days to start to withdraw money from your bank and communication wasn't quite so rapid, whereas now it takes seconds to make withdrawals and deposits of money and everyone was in each other's twitter feeds so very very quickly you had this escalating situation of a kind of a run on the bank where it went from what looked like a fairly stable business with some problems to all of a sudden mm. collapsing Mm-mm. very rapidly and i think that's an interesting point and maybe we need to get someone who's got a bit more expertise around this stuff to kind of comment on whether or not the regulation is fit for purpose given given the speed with which this moved
2: for the economy for the market for london the uk but also the us um where obviously they're probably going to feel the pinch a lot more or you know they're going to see a lot more repercussions i guess um, just because of the scale of seb over there um
1: but really good news in the uk this morning with that deal as as we've mentioned good work from the government over the weekend mm. um a huge sigh of relief for many people involved um it's across the tech and the life sciences sector and not least our guest today who would have been caught up in that so um i know for a fact that camilla um was stressed about this over the weekend so relief there uh because we are talking about a life sciences or to a life sciences business rather in oxford medical products so we'll hand over to the interview uh a much happier picture i'm sure for her today <laughs> um and tomorrow when this is going out on tuesday which will be the 14th um but have a listen and uh, we'll be back in about 20 minutes so today i'm joined by camilla easter ceo of oxford medical products how are you this morning i'm very well thanks how are you yeah good good this might be a really stupid question but i'd assume that you're near oxford
0: uh, we are, yeah. So we have one site out in Whitney, which is our pilot manufacturing facilities, uh, which we're in base at the moment. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we're just setting up another lab actually to look at some new R&D uh, closer to Oxford.
1: Very nice. Well, look, thank you for taking some time to, to join us this morning. Before we get into anything else, you just want to tell us a little bit about who Oxford Medical Products are.
0: Perfect. Yeah. So we are a clinical stage med tech company. Um, We're actually not spun out of the University of Oxford, which is unusual given the name and our location. So we developed all of our own IP in-house, which is quite unique for for where we are. Um, And we we were founded really to come up with an alternative, um, safe and accessible solution for weight loss. Um, And we really wanted to focus on medical technologies rather than pharmaceuticals um, because we wanted to have a completely different offering to what is out there and give people the opportunity to have a product that they could take in their own home, that they would be safe taking, that it would allow them to safely lose weight and maintain good weight. Um, so long-term weight loss, which is incredibly important and um, lacking from some of the treatments out there at the moment.
1: And sorry, you say you say med tech and you say kind of technology as opposed to pharmaceutical what, what kind of technology are we talking about here
0: uh, perfect yeah so um in the sense that we are totally non-pharmacological we are non-chemical mm. our product works entirely by a mechanical mode of action um, and so we have developed a very cool um, polymer which is a hydrogel and hydrogels are a material that are brilliant at holding a lot of water in. So um, the general population will have actually come across them. The contact lenses are made of um, hydrogels. Nappies are full of hydrogels. So you know when your little one fills up a nappy, it goes from being very dry and, and um, flat to very bulked out. That's hydrogel, keeping all of that moisture locked away. Now, hydrogels is actually a very diverse material. And so they can do loads of amazing cool things. And they're quite widely used in the medical space already. So we know they're safe, or they can be very, very safe if you select the, the right ones, which is a great starting point when you're creating a medical device. Um, and we know that they have the ability to swell to many, many times a bigger volume, which is what we needed when we were looking at trying to create a non-surgical solution, but still a mechanical solution to weight loss.
1: Okay, so so lots of questions here from from what you just said, but let's start with the first obvious one: Why weight loss? Why is it that obesity is something that you've decided to focus on?
0: So I think we can all agree that obesity is currently one of the biggest health challenges facing the world. This isn't just a population, a Western population issue now. Um, This is across the the world we're facing an increase in in BMI. And the problem with that is it's actually associated with some really significant comorbidities. You know, 80% of type 2 diabetes are, are caused by excessive weight. And you can go into remission if you can lose that excessive weight. Um, cardiovascular disease, um, orthopedic disease. Obesity is the second preventable leading cause of cancer, um, second only to smoking. Um, and, and that's all of the health implications. If we look at the economic implications, it causes it's, it's, it's costing the global economy almost 2 trillion every year. So that is matched only by smoking or armed conflict and terrorism that's the size of the impact that obesity is having on society. Um, And obviously very much on an individual level, trying to really reduce um, uh, an individual's BMI allows us to um, improve quality of life and really reduce um, those comorbidities that we've just just mentioned. So we wanted to focus on it because we felt like it was an area that is incredibly important, but really the solutions at the moment that are available aren't good enough, and not even close to being good enough. So um, when we look at obesity, there's three main treatment options, right? You can do diet and exercise. um, And fundamentally, when we look back at that, which makes sense, right, you know, you eat less, um, and you'll lose weight because you're, you know, you've got less calories in, uh, or if you burn it off to exercise. But it's it's so much more complicated than that in terms of how we've evolved as a species, which is to um, actually live through famine. And so when your body thinks it's in starvation mode, it will conserve energy. It will tell you you're more hungry than you are. So all of that's fighting against you. So unfortunately, diet and exercise just doesn't work for the majority of people. And we need to focus on alternative solutions as well. Um, Pharmaceuticals are a really exciting area at the moment um, with the GLP-1s that are coming out. Um, They're pretty expensive and come with some also quite nasty side effects as well. Um, But they absolutely have a have a place in in this um, disease process and the treatment for this disease. What we found really interesting was bariatric surgery, which um, isn't performed very often. It's quite hard to access on uh, the NHS because of the costs and um, obviously the number of surgeons required
1: sorry to just jump in but bariatric surgery being gastric band or something absolutely is that right
0: yeah sorry there's um loads of different types of bariatric surgery so um you could do a band which is around the top a uh, less common um now we could do a sleeve gastrectomy uh, which is kind of taking out some of the stomach making the stomach smaller we can bypass the stomach there's, there's lots of different types of surgery um but fundamentally bariatric surgery is typically focusing on Altering the anatomy of that upper part of your gastrointestinal tract in order to um, get your body um, to lose weight. Uh, the other option that sort of falls into that category is gastric balloons. So a gastric balloon is inserted via endoscopy. It's a big balloon that then swells up in your stomach and that takes up sort of half of your stomach volume. And what we see from these varying types is of, of bariatric surgery. Um, and, and the balloons, which I think you know, we categorise um, really alongside those, is fantastic weight loss and really good long term weight loss. Um, but unfortunately, of course, you know, there's simply not enough surgeons to operate on the hundreds of millions of people um, that need access to correct treatment. Uh, it's incredibly invasive. Um, obviously, it's a, it's an operation, um, and it and it's cost prohibitive. You know, we can't be as society sustaining that level of cost. Um, as a what needs to be a public health measure really to combat um, the obesity epidemic but coming back from that that does it does work so if we can reduce the available volume of the stomach what what that means is when we eat a meal the stretch receptors in our stomach are much more actively readily um, activated so That means we fire up our vagus nerve, which is correct, you know, connected straight from our stomach to our brain. So we've got this brilliant thing called our gut brain axis. And that's how they're connected. And then we get this fantastic cascade of hormones that sort of say stop eating. Um, And that works very, very well for appetite suppression. And that that's the same response you get after you know, you have a massive meal on a Sunday, and you kind of think, God, I literally couldn't eat anymore. I really am a bit uncomfortable. That's what bariatric surgery is inducing, but just much more early on in a meal, so you just want to stop eating, so we see this fantastic um uh, level of weight loss um and so we were like, well, this is working, but how can we make this a global solution so you know it cannot be surgical you cannot you, it cannot be um operating on people. We also need to make it safer when we need to make it more cost effective and lastly um we need to allow people to take this to fit in with their really busy lifestyles. It's really hard to maintain a diet for a very long period of time or a sort of intensive exercise program whilst going about our very, very busy lives that we need to to do. So uh, we set about developing our hydrogel, um, which you take as a pill. It swells up in the stomach, much like a gastric balloon, and it induces that feeling of satiety, which drives that appetite control.
1: And how long does one pill last?
0: So, essentially, what we're trying to achieve at any point in time is somewhere between twenty-five to 30, um, twenty-five to fifty percent of the stomach to be filled with our hydrogel. So we know that that you know the data from the balloon shows that that induces some really good weight loss. Um, a pill at the moment, our early data suggests it's lasting just under a week in the stomach, but I think that's a really good point one pill won't eat won't equal 50% of your stomach volume. So what we've done is a sort of modular system. So each pill at the moment is around about 40 cc when it's swollen up. So you'll take sort of around about 10 over the period of a week. So let's say it's two a day, we're working on the dosing of study, a lot of the study we're doing now is to understand when and how to dose people. Um, to induce that satiety, because we've got a huge flexibility with what we can do there, which is really exciting, but we need to understand it. So the idea being that if you start with two, you then go all the way up. And by the time you're at 10 in your stomach, the first two have broken down and are passing out. And then the next day you replace those two essentially. So the hydrogel um, is stable in the stomach environment, which is incredibly difficult to do. Um, You know, the stomach environment is very, very harsh for a purpose. So it's it took us quite a long time to get a hydrogel that could stay there. But then it mechanically breaks into smaller pieces, and essentially then passes out of the GI tract around about the week mark. Um, We're still doing a lot of data collection on that. So we haven't done it, we've only just started these trials. Um, and so we've got to learn a lot more about the stomach retention in humans as we go forward. And um, so we partnered actually with ACMR Oxford to run MRI scans on this. so We can really understand what's going on.
1: Now, look, before we hit record, you said that since 1992, since John Major's government, there have been, what, 680 policies <clears throat> put in place by yeah. the UK government. Yeah. It- and yet this problem is still getting worse. It is still... Presenting the economic challenges that you that you um, articulated at the top of this interview, why have those policies failed?
0: So I think I think we've been looking at this um, as we've mentioned earlier in a bit of a tunnel vision. If we can get people to eat less and we can get people to eat you know healthy, then they all start to lose weight. And the fundamentals is yes, that's part of the part of the um, treatment that we need to be looking at but we have to be more holistic as I said obesity is incredibly complex and um, people live with obesity for a number of different reasons and so having you know uh, everybody has to just eat less just doesn't work you know it as I said it fails unfortunately dieting fails for 95 percent of people. Uh, at 100% no fault of, of their own. Their bodies are um, telling them to go and eat more because they think they're in this starvation um, state. And I think our frustrations were not that the government had done 680 policies, but that there hadn't been a massive change in those policies and their thought processes hadn't really changed, which is when we said, we have got to come in and, and look at this from a very different direction because it, it's it's not working. We can't keep trying to tell people to eat less. It doesn't it doesn't work like that. Um, so I think the reason it hasn't worked is because they've been oversimplifying, or they think I think it's I think it's an overly simple um, way of looking at um, losing weight. Whereas actually, what we need to do is have much more long term holistic approach and a much more achievable way of doing that. And I think. You know when i speak to our surgeons we've got a fantastic clinical advisory board um and one of the biggest sort of bits of advice i guess i got from them was people do well with bariatric surgery when the weight loss is effortless they don't feel like they're having to be starving all the time they don't feel like they can't go out for a meal because they'll then put on the weight that they've um they've already lost and it's effortless because your body doesn't think it's starving when you've had bariatric surgery. It thinks it's full. So you don't have that hormonal hormonal drive to go and seek food. And that's exactly what I'm trying to do here. Um, I've got this analogy, which I, I haven't come up with a better one. Um, but I think it, it, it tells the story of if you're trying to quit smoking, It's much easier to quit smoking if you've got uh, a nicotine patch on, right? So they take away those cravings, and that allows you to adjust your lifestyle and wean yourself off and ultimately quit smoking. Much harder to go cold turkey, which is what we're asking people to do when they're dieting. What we're saying is if we can take away that um, drive of hunger or at least stem some of that drive of hunger and give them that support... They're much more likely to be able to achieve their weight loss um, goals and then go on to support them long term as well, because obesity is a chronic disease and it should be treated as such. So, if you went to your doctors with high blood pressure, you'd be put on high blood pressure pills. You'd be very unlikely to ever come off those high blood pressure pills because your high blood pressure will always be there. If you withdraw treatment from your high blood pressure pills, your blood pressure will go back up again, right? So, you haven't treated it, you're managing the symptoms. Obesity we've sort of come to understand more recently is very much the same. So as soon as you withdraw treatment, be it you come off your diet, or you stop your GLP one receptor agonist um, from the farmer, or actually your surgery is reversed. So sometimes some of the bands are currently being reversed. Um, people then, on the whole, will start to put the weight back on because their desire to eat has gone up, their drive to eat has gone up. And so we don't, we can't just be a weight loss solution we have to look at the maintenance and long-term effect and how we support people through that
1: now you um you're about 12 people at the moment you raised money last year you're going through human trials um you've got a lot going on as a startup as a growth business yourself you're obviously working as you've mentioned there you've got clinical advisors you're working with the health community but how can these two elements uh, a youngish high growth startup in oxford and the mass that is the global healthcare system work together better to help produce patient outcomes and, and the kind of results that you're talking about?
0: Um, So I think we're in a very unique position. Um, we've got some fantastic people on board. Um, Hutan knows the system very well. He's an NHS surgeon and doctor, uh, very well respected. He was chief, uh, chief scientific officer at Imperial as well, um, uh, sort of alongside starting and founding um, Medical products. And actually, certainly from my point of view, and my experience is within the NHS system, there's a huge desire to engage with innovative, new novel treatment options. Um, I wrote, gosh, back in, I think it was the middle of 2020, to um, NIHR and said, look, we're thinking of doing this trial. We haven't even completed preclinical, but this is how it works. This is how it does is anyone interested in supporting us and coming on board and collaborating and helping helping us with this journey? And we had a fantastic response from GPs through to um, endocrinologists through to bariatric surgeons, sort of, because obesity is a disease that penetrates all areas of health, of course, you know, the GPs are having to deal with it as a frontline, um, and endocrinologists are dealing with it from a sort of um, particularly type 2 diabetes point of view, and, and through to the Bariatric surgeons. And as I said, we had this overwhelming response that this is what we need, right? We need a uh, much more global solution, something that is much more accessible. So, our journey so far has been great. I, for want of a better, as a fantastic collaboration between really driven, intelligent individuals. We've um, partnered with Southampton um, University Hospital and their research unit um, there. We've got great um, collaboration with Bristol University as well. Um, Again, coming back to the holistic approach, we've actually partnered with their um, behavioural and experimental psychologists there. So how can we help and support our individuals taking our treatment um, from the more psychological element as well? Um, So I think the people are there. Right. Everybody wants to drive it forward at um, sort of the base layer. Yes, process can be difficult. Unfortunately, obviously, the M- uh, NHS has been really overwhelmed recently, which has absolutely impacted how fast we can move. There's not much we can do about that. Um, but mm. the people are brilliant, and I think that's what drives these sorts of projects forward. I think it's the individual side of things. My experience so far, I think, is that policy is a lot, a a lot more slow to change um, and we're working with some great investors who are able to help that so um, Nesta uh, Impact Fund came in in our last round they're heavily involved in um, helping the government with policy decisions um, from from these angles for particularly around um, nutrition and obesity Um, and then I think going into the wider sort of global healthcare market what I really want to try and do, and it comes back to the success, was how do we get this to the majority of people? And yes, we want to be accessible through the NHS. Um, but actually, I think what we also need to do is offer people a completely alternative route. So this is sort of early days in our go to market strategy. But unfortunately, you know, having done quite a lot of market research going and particularly going into these trials and speaking to um, people that would be taking part in our trials, they've Unanimously, had a really bad experience speaking to GPs and other healthcare professionals um, about um, their experience with weight loss. And what they want is a very discreet process because, unfortunately, obesity is still stigmatized. And so, these individuals said so they felt very embarrassed going to speak to their GPs. And obviously, that's no no fault of the healthcare professionals, but that's just how they feel. Um, And so we said, well, if we can provide a much more discreet process, and that might be through something like telemedicine prescribing. So obviously you can call up, you can have your prescription, it can then be um, delivered straight to your home. I think that's also going to increase accessibility and engagement in obesity treatments.
1: We we talked earlier about the number of, of policies that have been released by the government I sometimes feel if you look at media that there is still you you mentioned stigma still a persistence that this is an individual responsibility challenge rather than a disease framing it in the terms that you've been talking about that does that stigma persist where legislation is involved perhaps where policy is involved and, and there's an element of having to work through that.
0: I think unfortunately, it does. Um, And I suspect it's just a reflection of us all as individuals in society. We are seeing a shift change. Um, And I think as recently, you know, just within the last six months, we're starting to get people that really understand that this is a disease rather than lifestyle choice. You know, I've, I've had calls with investors uh, from VCs who have taken my call, and I've been pitching it. And then halfway through, they've gone, yeah, but um I'm not really sure I believe that because these people could just eat less and lose weight. And I conversation this conversation's over I can't possibly have someone like that invest in my company. And so these stigmas absolutely um still, still exist, but it's just a case of education, um it's a case of um the media picking it up and starting to understand the science behind it. Frustratingly, a lot of the science has been there for quite a long time, actually, saying that this is a disease rather than a, a lifestyle choice. But I think now we've got some really big pharmaceuticals getting involved, you know, Novo with Azempic and and Lily with Monjaro. They have the firepower and the marketing campaigns to, to change this. And fundamentally, diseases that are stigmatized, are never treated as well as diseases that aren't because people just won't access treatment. Um, they won't engage with the system. And so it's really important um, that we do destigmatize it, that we do encourage engagement, almost regardless of how you feel, mm-hmm. because it doesn't matter how, I guess, even if you feel like this is an individual choice, which I 100% disagree with, but even if you did feel like that, it's short sighted because it's still having a massive effect on our economy and our healthcare systems.
1: So is so technology unlocking the ability to, I suppose, bring people together who might have who might have wanted to fix this problem, but now they see there's a solution that they can convalesce around and the, the collaboration as a consequence is easier because there are solutions that are easier to put in place and to deliver?
0: I think, yeah, I think what we're seeing with a, such a complex disease as obesity is that we need... We need technology from all aspects to come together to treat this because there is no silver bullet. You know, saying that I've got the solution here. Our solution is going to work for lots of people, I hope. Um, But there'll be some people that it won't work for and something else will be more appropriate. We have to do a holistic approach um, and bring together both the pharmaceuticals, the surgical, uh, sort of the non-surgical, but mechanical the diet and exercise, the psychological, all of those need to come together into one place to allow, I think, a sort of cohesive response um, to to what is the obesity crisis at the moment.
1: Look, it's a super interesting area. I really appreciate you taking some time to talk to me this morning. Uh, I know it's a big year. Obviously, as we said, you've got your your human trials. Um, You're also looking at perhaps raising another round of funds towards the end of the year uh maybe thinking about us commercialization further down the line so good luck with all of that uh, it would be great to catch up with you maybe in 12 24 months and see how everything's going
0: great thanks very much great to speak to you
1: right it's it's absolutely insane how much obesity is costing uh, the global economy second most first of all second most preventable cause of cancer and yeah costing the glo- global economy two trillion a year I don't know whether that's pounds or dollars mm. but that is insane yeah I didn't
2: realize it was that much money um and I didn't realize the the stats you know when she was referring to it as the epidemic and and one of the you know largest killers and 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 you know stuff like that so it it was honestly i mean for me listening to it um yeah you know i was just like this is this is crazy and um you know coming from a a a demographic myself which is um you know high on diabetes high on cholesterol the, the sort of south asian population in the uk um it was harrowing stuff actually and to be honest um i know i listened to the interview um I know I listened to the interview sort of without the the episode and stuff, but I will be sending that on to my parents and family because I think some of the stats that mentioned, you really kind of take a step back and you go, wow, like I didn't understand the severity of this. Um, Yeah. Which is crazy.
1: And also the way of thinking about obesity, Hmm. because to be perfectly blunt, I probably fall into the category of not thinking about it as a disease. I probably, Oh, you know, it's, it's something that, that, you have to take a a bit of personal responsibility for yeah
2: yeah and 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 i think it's so easy for us dave like you and i right like to to think of it
1: because we're so we're so such fine specimens well i mean to be honest (laughs)
2: we wish i mean i mean (laughs) you are mate uh you know if anyone follows you with strava but uh, i i definitely am not um
1: but I have I have my health issues that are that are
2: genetic, so I I can have you, some degree of sympathy. In. You kind of just think about it, and you think actually this is this is real. This is hmm. you know totally. this is this is um, something that is actually a a disease, right? And and it plays on not people yeah. physically, but the mental, the emotional, the you know, the, the the sort of dark places that this could take someone, you don't actually understand. You know, for people like me and you, you go, Well, you know, get yourself a gym membership or, you know, just try not to eat, you know, like the 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 foods that aren't good for you and you know everything will be all right. But it's not like that. It's not you know, it's not like getting a cold and people go, Oh well, you know, drink a lot of your greens and, you know, sort of get your vitamins in, have some paracetamol about three four days a week
1: you'll be fine you know this is this is people's lives and And it's genetic it's hormonal you know that whole point about when you know it has to be sustainable it has to be Mm -hmm. low cost because when when the um treatment is withdrawn Mm. people tend to tend to put the weight back on because absolutely um because because the hormone is there and i like the analogy with with smoking it's like going cold turkey i would never really thought about it in that regard when when you're talking about dieting yeah
2: yeah and and
1: and i think it just it, it actually
2: i mean when i think of obesity i mean i think about like you know uh, government things, you know, what was the stuff that the NHS did, like couch to 5K and, you know, improve, mm. like, which is good, like, yeah. it is good. I wouldn't like, and, and I don't know if this is me being ignorant of the fact of, you know, obesity, but I would never think that there would be a whole kind of, you know, business, a a, a scale up organization, a technology, you know, medical business that would be geared to this, but then when I hear myself say that, I think, well, why not? Like, this is a massive problem. Like, this is a huge issue. Um, and I think what they're tasked with, especially in terms of, you know, the cost that these things come at um, and, and, and the sort of man hours and, and you know, kind of um, even when it comes to like surgery and these sorts of things, then it is something that definitely needs to get improved on. Um, and the fact that they're, they're having to have, you um, uh you know sort of uh products and and, and services and, and the technology that they're using to to counteract the long man hours the you know labor intensive um
1: sort of work that you would need um it's great man honestly very very good and look you might not know this but it's british science week this week oh um Theme is connections, mm-hmm. so kind of talking about life sciences this week seems to make sense. And tomorrow we're launching our film, name the name of which is Techflix. No, well, you came up with it. So oh, thank you. <laughs> I was you. waiting for you to uh, jump in there. Oh,
2: finally, a bit of credit, a bit of credit. So for everyone. <laughs> I, um, I love the fact
1: that you looked blankly at me what, there. Like, I've what?
2: not been getting the credit for it, so I've kind of just forgotten about it now.
1: Um, <laughs> Akeesh came up with a name tag. Thank you it. very <laughs> much,
2: yeah. I am the uh, the naming party um, for this. Yeah. Anyway, Dave, but you're... So, so tomorrow, tomorrow's, it, tomorrow's you're film. in it, so you, you, you go, mate.
1: Well, look, again, we're talking to another life sciences business, Okra Bio. Uh, and Camilla, I, I am ashamed to say that I stole some of the uh, stats directly from this interview into my narration um, with regards to the the failure of government policies around simply moving more um, not not working but it was it was interesting listening to jack in that film if you watch that film it's being screened plug on LinkedIn at three o'clock tomorrow uh have a look at the National web page but Jack talks about these issues in very much the same terms you know he talks about the BMI he talks about obesity he talks about how difficult it is to treat and he talks about it as a as a disease um so I think that, that it's time that, that we as a society try to think about this, you and I included, in a in a more caring and understanding way and and try and peel back some of that stigma that, that would hold development and, and treatment, affordable, sustainable treatment back.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Um and, and, and I think it's definitely now that we are in a phase where I don't know, it just seems like the market, it seems like you know, VCs, PE firms. It seems that we can now openly talk about funding, and we can talk about money, and businesses thriving. That I, I don't know. It just seems like the market is 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 gearing towards a way where we can talk about that, right? I remember us being sat here in the pandemic doing this podcast, and it was all a bit doom and gloom with because you didn't know what was happening with people's furloughs and careers and jobs, you know, you didn't really talk about the fancy tech or, or businesses coming to actually change people's lives and money because the base livelihood that people needed was not being really, you know, looked after. But I feel like the market is in a place now where we can talk about this and say, Hey, look, these are exciting organizations, you know, passionate founders, great technology here for the betterment of society and why wouldn't someone want to get behind that
1: yeah absolutely look camilla um thank you for sharing such uh, an important and timely message with it being british science week um we are going to take a quick break and when we come back having said that it's not about moving more Nonetheless, it's still a good thing to do. We're going to very quickly talk about cycling and a product built for cyclists. A couple of years ago, Michael and Jacob, two friends from London, were both thinking about their consumption and sustainability as a whole. Michael, a professional footballer at the time, realised he had no options when it came to sustainable sportswear. Overconsumption and underuse was all too common. Hilo was born, a sportswear brand fighting for the planet by changing mindsets. They've started with a running shoe made with seven natural materials, and the shoe can be recycled at the end of its life. As a company, they've offset their carbon to beyond zero, making them carbon negative. You can find out more about Hilo and support their mission at HiloAthletics.com. That's H Y L O. We support the Hilo movement. Right, so second guest this week, we're crossing the Atlantic, we're going to go to New York, we're talking to Ross McGraw of Hammerhead, VP of Marketing. Um, Akish, ever done Lycra? Uh, yeah, yeah, I have, yeah, yeah. I You have? I,
2: yeah, I don't look the best in it,
1: I'll be honest with you, but I have, yeah, yeah. I'll be honest, I didn't expect you to say yes. No, I
2: have, yeah, I did some cycling stuff, Um yeah a few years ago where i had to don a full lycos oh really you know when uh when was it when uh london 2012 right so the mm-hmm. is it the velodrome i want to say the velodrome that got built yeah. for it um i ended up at a investec charity cycling day um oh. to to kind of help the launch of it or whatever but yeah one of my friends is um uh, uh you know works there um so we got invited uh i went um because i thought i'd be meeting a load of gb cyclists but um turned out that we were cycling ourselves and yeah first time i've uh, i've you know worn cycling shorts and all that sort of stuff so just imagine is that
1: like one of those one of those moments where you get on the professional bike and they like give you a demonstration of how quick the pros do it like, yeah you going, yeah going, for the benefit oh of, dear mate, for
2: the benefit of uh, everyone listening i'm holding up a pen i can describe the frame as being as like as thin as a pen and you just and imagine what the seat would then be like so uh it was not the most comfiest uh Two three hours of my life, I'll be honest, but uh, yeah. And also, I realised they don't have brakes, which is very funny.
1: Um, no, they don't, do they? those, no, they, quite, those, <laughs> no. those indoor ones. You're no. meant
2: to slow down by yourself, um, which I found quite interesting. Um, but anyway, I have done like for yeah. There you go.
1: Nice, <laughs> nice. Well, look, this isn't velodrome. This is this is kind of the road variety. Um, yeah. uh, it's uh, it's a piece of technology that sits on your handlebars, kind of a computer map, data readouts, and, and all sorts. Um, built specifically for the cycling community. Chris Froome and the like have been involved. Um, But what I love about this is um, this is a product that is so clearly built by a bunch of people who are obsessed with the sport and with cycling. Um, And they've tried to be part of that community, acknowledging and responding to user comments, um, Facebook groups. And there's, there's a really interesting point towards the end of it about the fact that you know, Ross, who's VP of marketing, says that brand matters more than features. And they've tried to pack their their products full of features that their community wants to see. But the admittance that brand matters, so you've got to create a brand that your community genuinely loves. And I found that quite quite surprising, really, when Hammerhead, to me and you, Akish, mm-hmm. probably not heard of it because we're not cyclists. So it's not not like a household brand. And they are going up against some very big brands, as the interview suggests. Um, but it's really important for them to have built a brand that that community really trusts and and loves. Absolutely. I suppose it's like cricket bats. There are cricket bat brands <laughs> that no one's ever heard of that within the cricket community. Like. Yeah,
2: very true. And they're quite niche, aren't they? So for those that know, will know. Um, now, and if you if you ever you know, at the pub with a couple of cyclists they are probably talking about brands and stuff and you can't kind of think, well, what? So it's like when I have to hear you and Amber or other co-hosts talk about running stuff. I'm just a bit like, <laughs>
1: uh, Nike trainers? Sockery shoes. Yeah. Sockery
2: who? Yeah, uh, Nike <laughs> trainers, uh, Adidas, uh, and then I'm well, To be
1: out. fair, Nike and Adidas are pretty big in running, mate. <laughs> yeah,
2: exactly. Yeah, but uh, then I'm out. Uh, so. <laughs> but yeah, no, um, but no, it's, it's good to see and, and you know, I love where we're going with this. It's all got a very active theme, this episode. It's all very... Oh, yeah, absolutely. You know, to- a bit of life
1: sciences to start with, a bit, bit of the medical side. And, yep, yeah, it's not all about moving more. It is, it is, you know, obesity is a disease. It's about hormones. But at the same time, if you can get out, if you can walk, if you can run, if you can play sports, if you can cycle, well, it's not just good for you physically, it's good for you mentally. So we're going to support that too. Yeah. Loads of good stuff. Anyway, Akish, thanks for your time. Thank you. So today I'm joined by Ross uh, Ross McGraw. Hopefully hopefully I pronounced that right. Um who's yeah. joining us all the way from New York. How are you? Or just outside New York?
3: Uh good. I'm great. Just outside New York. It's uh it's not currently snowing. It's rain raining and just above freezing, which is probably Delightful. the worst of, of both worlds, yeah. It's quite soupy.
1: I normally I kind of I I talk about the weather because I'm British and it has no relevance at all. But actually, given that Hammerhead your the organization that you work for encourage people certainly to get out on their bikes in weather like this it it does make a bit of a difference for once
3: yeah yeah I uh you know I'm not afraid of getting getting a little wet and uh it's actually funny one of the biggest settings that a lot of our pro riders uh ask us about is the screen lock feature because you know a touch screen in the rain isn't the most fun thing in the world but they're They're the ones who ask, and you can tell who the diehard athletes are because they ask about that feature. There's a lot of athletes who never ask about screen lock because I know exactly what they're doing, and I don't blame them riding on the trainer indoors might be the better option
1: Well look um we've kind of alluded to the to the the sector that the organization is in. Do you just want to give before we do anything else, and this should be good given that you are vP of marketing a uh, a quick overview of Hammerhead.
3: Sure thing. Uh, so Hammerhead is a, or we are a technology company in the cycling space, uh, and we make the, one of the leading head units in the market, which is a, you know, a GPS computer for your bike. So um, Hammerhead's been around since 2013 uh, in various stages. Uh, started out on Kickstarter, got some VC investment, um, you know, including the likes of Former Tour de France winners, uh, including Chris Froome and some others, um, and was recently just acquired by SRAM. And if you know you are not a diehard cyclist and you don't know who SRAM is, if you own a bike, generally your your Trek or your BMC or you know Specialized, all of the things on it, uh, generally speaking, come from one of two companies, Shimano or SRAM. So uh, we're now part of that that SRAM uh, company, is based in Chicago in the U.S.
1: So, look. When you talk about a kind of a, a a computer that's sitting on or a screen that's sitting on your bike, this is not this is not a navigation tool necessarily. This is, you know, I, I'm on your website now, and people describing it as a kind of a pocket size phenomenon. It's 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 data, it's insights, it's the kind of stuff that I suppose a runner would look to a Garmin for, perhaps, plus the navigation and everything else. What what is this offering the cyclist?
3: Yeah, I mean, you said the G word, so I won't mention those guys. But there's uh, there's a few others in the space. And, um, you know, there's there's plenty of folks who use a watch. But in cycling, there's sort of this weird, <laughs> weird thing where you have bars, and you can put stuff on it. So some folks choose to put their phones on there. and And that's just fine for them, because they're getting into the sport. You know, maybe they use Strava or something like that. But uh, on the, the higher end of the sport, the more serious cyclists, what we found is that they require something a bit more rugged um, with a lot more connectivity. So what I mean by that is Bluetooth or AMP+, Plus, which is the standard for, um, you know, that cycling tends to use. So if you want to connect your heart rate monitor, your power meter on your bike, your see what your cadence is, um, even something we've added with TireWiz, you can see your tire pressure live, which is quite cool. Um, but allowing riders to connect essentially everything on their bike, similar to what most people are used to in their car and sort of see if you have a rear flat or, you know, your, your passenger hasn't fastened their seatbelt is maybe not something we've added yet. But um, certainly that type of information, having a dash right in front of you that allows you to see all that data uh, is quite useful. So, you know, even on the Pro Tour, a lot of the riders will look at uh, predictive path technology where we show the upcoming elevation. In great detail so if they're on a climb and they want to attack they can see there's a steeper section of the climb coming up Um, or they can look and also see what gearing they're in without kind of trying to look back between their legs so
1: technology
3: is a tool um, as a support system for helping them to become better riders
1: and where is this aimed in terms of the market because you mentioned Chris Froome two three minutes ago as as being kind of um, instrumental, um, and yeah, I live in I live in rural Kent, and on a on any given Saturday or Sunday morning, you know, outside of the various cafes in our village, um, you will see I don't know six seven bikes all kind of piled on top of each other, and people stopping off for a cake and a coffee. Obvious riding enthusiasts, um, but certainly not at that elite end of the scale. You're who who are you trying to kind of? Uh, aim the product at and, and help?
3: Yeah, it's it's quite interesting. I mean, I would say Hammerhead's Career 2 is equally as good of a cafe ride tool <laughs> as it is a pro tour <laughs> tool in that you can have points of interest on there and navigate to them the same way. So literally a cafe, if you want, you can sort of hold and it'll navigate you the best route possible by bike to that cafe. So I'll be the first to tell you it's quite useful in those scenarios, but it is really <laughs> geared towards, you know, relatively serious rider. Um, mm-hmm. You know, if you're out and you're doing short rides on, on maybe like a, a cruiser bike and just getting into the sport, a lot of people do just fine with their phones um, as a supplemental tool to find out where they're going. Um, where we've seen really, really uh, good connection and a fit uh, is helping riders who are just starting to, to graduate a bit from maybe a, you know, hobby that's done occasionally to something a bit more serious where they want to explore new roads. They want to, you know, monitor their fitness more closely and, and really get all of the data um, or simply just want to, um, yeah, find, find a new appreciation of the sport and, and do things a bit differently and log log more detail on Strava or compete with Strava live segments on the road, which is something you can do with the device. So
1: well, that's something uh, I can absolutely
3: uh,
1: (laughs) empathize with as a runner. So yes.
3: Yeah. Yeah. So I I think that's where we really shine is that, that just one, one step up where you're like, I'm getting quite serious. If you're willing to wear spandex in public or Lycra in public, then like you're getting there. Um, you're, You're that committed to the sport, but I think that's the the sweet spot. And then we have a lot of, you know, adventure is one of our, um, original ambassadors. Joe Cruz is an incredible adventure. He's the one of the folks who originally helped create what is now the, uh, the Silk Road trail, um, which is an epic, you know, multi-day, uh, bike trip through, uh, Kazakhstan I believe it goes through and um, he's also created some amazing routes you know Vermont Ted King that this route across all of Vermont and, and Joe's the one who helped create that route um, so he's just this epic modern adventure he writes for bikepacking magazine as a philosophy professor he's like the most interesting man alive but he uses the career too as a way to just explore and, and see the world completely differently um, and that's incredibly different than somebody like Chris Froome or uh, Mike Woods or one of our pro tour riders who are out there, um, you know, going after stage wins or, or jerseys. Uh, Woodsy was in Polka dots a couple of years back with with his Hammerhead, and I think it's incredibly rewarding to see technology being an additive part of both of those experiences equally.
1: So that's that's an interesting part because you you mentioned a point rather because you mentioned there about someone exploring the world. Um again when I run in a new city, I like to go out, you know, pull on trainers and go for a ten or a five or a ten K run because I get to see the place that I'm staying in and explore it to a degree. And I, I can only imagine it's exactly the same with a bike except at slightly larger distances. Um how do you make sure though that, that the technology is enhancing that experience, you know, and we don't find ourselves looking down at the screen and fiddling around with data that may or may not be relevant.
3: Yeah, that's a great point. There's a couple uh, tricks that I use, and and what's nice about having a, a device that's really customizable and, and able to be personalized is you can do tweaks like I'm going to talk about. So, you know, one of the things that I'll do on a ride like that is, first of all, I'll go to my route building tool of choice, right? Hammerhead has a dashboard. You can go on and you can map your route there. It gives you amazing routes. Um But what I found is I prefer using GPS or Komoot um, to also look at their maps and just see what data they might have and compare and contrast. You know, do I want to be on some gravel and and some fun roads? I'll even go to Google Earth and zoom in sometimes and be like, oh, that looks interesting. It goes through some farm and whatever. Uh, So I like to sort of explore there and then what I'll do is map it and um, with the Google Chrome extension, you can just tap that, it goes right into the device. And what that means is now that all of that planning and and data and map looking has gone into the device, and now I can choose how much I want to look at it, to your point. So when I'm out exploring on on a longer ride, one of the settings I'll use is is battery save mode. What it also means is leave me alone mode. It will shut the screen off when, when there's no need to look at the screen. So obviously, it saves quite a bit of battery, but it also means that you know you're looking around, and when the screen flashes on, then it's got some information for you. Hey, you're going to turn left soon, a couple of meters, or you know there's a stop sign coming up, and you're going to need to go around a roundabout, whatever that that instruction is. But it's really quite helpful because unless there's something to tell you, unless there's an emergency, again, your rear tire pressure is low, or some battery's low, on you're shifting, or you know whatever that thing is. You're not going to get that alert unless it's important. Otherwise, the screen will be off. And I've found that really, really helpful. The other thing that's super helpful is controlling what screens you show. So on a long ride where I don't want to focus on performance metrics, I'll just have a map screen up. So it'll give me the directions. But I've put on another view all of my data, my speed, my cadence, my watts, you know, like stuff I really have no business knowing about if I'm out in a T-shirt and in short sort of just exploring um, and i'll put that on a different screen altogether. so what i found is uh the difference between that and what i used to do pre-technology which was make little cue cards on paper that got awfully wet when it rained and i inevitably would lose one and have to get my phone out and try to figure it out again that was really distracting because i was constantly trying not to crash fill with these cards and not lose them or get them wet And um, I've actually enjoyed riding the ride itself, the experience of exploring and seeing new things way more with a piece of technology on the bike than I did without it, which is unique. I think, you know, a lot of times my watch for example gives me notifications every time I get an email, which is quite distracting, but it's sort of the opposite of that. I'm I'm only getting a notification when, when I need to be sort of informed of something, but otherwise it's not going to bother me. It's sort of like a, virtually respectful
1: <laughs> that's interesting because i went out running with a with a colleague last week and she doesn't use her watch which is designed for running because it was alerting her to lots of other stuff all the time and distracting her from a run I hadn't realized that you could go into the settings and change that quite quickly but there we go it's the same mentality people want to not be pulled away from the from the experience around them by the tech um the company's been around since 2013 you joined in july 2020 at the time i think you described it as um before you hit record as a a top 50 company i would Um, say it
3: was top 15 yeah
1: top 15 sorry at that point and now it's top three
3: yeah we're we're squarely in the top three with uh there's a g word and a w word in there there's some other guys here quite big um but I, I think that's been an amazing progression, you know. We're, we're a company with one skew, and that's quite different to those other two guys, um, yep. you know, particularly the one with the G. But they, you know, Garmin's huge. They have categories that are that dwarf athletics. <laughs> you know, aviation and, and nautical pursuits are huge for them. So, what's been really, really, I think, powerful about Hammerhead as a company is just being incredibly rider-centric. How do we make riding a bike more fun and easier and more accessible and better? Every single time you get on the bike, that's that's what everyone's focused on. And that's, that's rather unique compared to you know, what we consider our competitors who focus on many, many more activities and things um, and challenges.
1: If you don't mind the question... As we've alluded to the to the fact that there are quite a range of cyclists out there, there might be the rather disparagingly named mammals. They're keen to get in their lycra, but perhaps they're not the elite athlete. And then there are the elite athletes, and they are looking for different things in this product. And a product has to be quite flexible as a as a consequence to individual needs. How do you balance that with being something that is focused that allows you to really hone a product that that has propelled you to where you are in the market now?
3: Yeah. We have an incredible uh, product and and software team and what they're, again, they're also, they're incredibly rider centric. Every part of the organization is, you know, we talk to support quite often on the marketing side. So does our product team and what that product team is focused on is exactly that, right? What is best for the rider experience? Um, And when we say rider, we're including both of those groups. And in many ways, there are way more mammals than there are, elite athletes. So to the maybe chagrin of some of our super elite athletes, we've certainly done features that are really helpful to them. But generally speaking, we're not adding that feature simply for them. We're adding it because it's going to be additive to the average rider. So the the example I I kind of mentioned before is we created this climber feature and the whole idea was if you program a route in climber will tell you when you hit the m- bottom of a climb, it'll all of a sudden pop up with all this detail of like, all right, it's going to be 5% gradient, then 10% then it's going to go back to six and then up to 50. That's really steep. So let's not do that, but like <laughs> 35. Um, but the point is you'll see all that detail and yeah. we released that right before the tour de France. I, I remember being over there with Mike Woods and, and Chris Froome and, um, Quite a few others of the teams, and, and, and they had helped actually create that. They had told us what they really need in a race situation. But what made that a priority isn't just that they were asking for it. It's the fact that every rider, you know, I've been on mountain climbs, and I want to know when the end is and how hard it's going to get. <laughs> and it's equally valuable to me just to survive that climb as it is for them to attack at just the right moment. So the reason that feature was so so much of a focus is, yeah, it certainly helps those guys in those race situations. And like I mentioned, Woodsy ended up in polka dots that year. And i love to think that it's had something to do with us. But what was really interesting about that is Mike Woods grew up in Canada and he was riding against guys who grew up in these, these alpine climbs and knew them, you know, as their backyard. So maybe there was a bit of the technology helping. And what happened was we actually evolved that because the product team noticed that a lot of riders... The majority of our riders, to your point, they're just going out and around their usual ride. So they might not be programming in a route. And that means they don't get the climber data. So we created climber using predictive path technology, allowing us to say, hey, we think you're going to go up this climb. Here's what that looks like. And we're actually giving people now the data without having to put a route in, to your point, because it just makes for a better ride experience. And if you're on that ride where you don't want to see, you just kind of swipe down or turn that setting off. And that's fine too. You can just sort of survive it and and enjoy it in your own time.
1: Look, I think it's been fascinating to talk. You have got a fairly, you've got a very um, definite demograph that the, the, the product is definitely aimed at. But as a final word to, I suppose, other marketing heads, who work in technology you've mentioned there a couple of you or at least you've you've kind of touched on a couple of lessons that they might take back to other markets what do you think people should bear in mind if they if they want to take whatever product or brand that they've got in whatever sector or market it is and go from you know middle of the pack to one that's really up there competing what's what's one or two things they might think about
3: yeah i think you know from our perspective we've not just been writer obsessed, but community obsessed from a marketing perspective. And what that means is, um, from the very beginning, we went to all the reviewers that matter, every tech, you know, guru out there, and we not only gave them the technology, but we allowed them to play with it before it was live and really interacted with them and even took feedback and incorporated that into the product. So. Very early on, we started to go to this core of what is a extremely selective community of of cyclists, um, of sort of core cyclists, or they look at themselves that way. And um, we we made it quite clear that we're building something that appeals to them, and that solves their problems and challenges. And then what we also did is enlisted the help of, you know, the, the folks that everyone in that community respects um, or, you know, looks to for, is this thing legit? And, you know, we, we worked with Chris Vroom and and the Israel Premier Tech team, um, you know, multiple time Tour de France champion. We also had incredible investors along the way, including Next Ventures with, uh, you know, quite a few experienced folks there and starting to work with Flora Duffy in triathlon even, you know, she's just a force to be reckoned with, but, Really starting to put our product at the top tier of the sport and allow us to, to push the boundaries. But what that also did is it made it quite clear that, you know, people like you and I who just want to go out for a ride, if it can perform at that level, well, it's certainly probably good enough for me. And then we paid that forward. You know, we, we built community. So we started as a D2C only company and we started looking at our maps and, you know, where are our riders, where are clumps of riders we built ambassador communities there. And then we opened shops there because we realized that the shops were, the shops are a part of the community. You go back in to get your bike serviced. It's not like running where you buy the shoes maybe once, and then you buy them online or whatever. People have to go to their shop. It's a part of the cycling community. It's where they meet for group rides. It's where they go to get their chain fixed or you know get a new tube when they've flatted. Yeah. So we've started building and building on this community. Um, we created a, a an ambassador program that allows us to connect our, you know, newer and emerging riders with our existing riders and you know, folks who are trying to change the sport, like Justin Williams and these incredible athletes. So from from start to finish, we've we've really tried to be part of the community, um, which is really difficult in peak COVID. A lot of this was done remotely and and whatnot, but we we've started to be a part of that community and follow that community and you know acknowledge and respond to that community down to looking at individual comments in our support channels or facebook groups and bringing that into our product considerations um, and how we market or communicate things in the future so you know there's needs to be a healthy degree of obsession there that that i think every company needs but Everything I've mentioned is quite unique to our audience. And I, I'm not saying anyone should do any of those things because when you're obsessed with your customer, you're going to learn that, that they're very different. And, you know, you certainly shouldn't go to a bike shop and open up if you're selling, you know, shoes. But I, I think being obsessed with with your customer is going to help you understand the way they work and what they value and how they respect you more The one key data point I'll leave you with is more of our riders or almost equal amounts of our riders, I'll say, cited brand as an important part of their decision in choosing our product, almost equal to product features. And I found that really powerful and compelling for two reasons. One, people lie, and it's probably more. (laughs) But two, the fact that brand was so powerful in a decision of how to spend $400 versus what features it actually came with is is really powerful and incredible. Um, So the person or the brand that you've created uh, is quite important to people when they make decisions about what products they're going to buy.
1: Really interesting to chat to you today. Thank you for giving up some time this morning. And uh, I hope that the, uh, the brand continues to propel you forward.
3: For sure. Thank you so much.